taxes. Captain Matt Edward retired here with a little bit of a commentary on the tax system. I think I'm very uh, competent to talk about this because I used to be a tax collector for 16 years. I used to collect the taxes that the government of Canada charges on income. However, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've learned about taxes comes from my uh, retirement, I don't know, disability retirement after CRA. I ended up getting medically released from both Canada Revenue Agency and the military within about a week. 12th of uh, January 2012, it was Canada Revenue Agency kicked me out for being disabled. And a week later, the Army booted me to the curb for being disabled under a medical release process. So that gave me a lot of time because I don't have a job anymore at either place. I'm not serving my nation and I'm not serving CRA. So I've got lots of time to read cases. Well, when I was collecting taxes, it was basically the back end of it, the end result. So when taxes were assessed, then I was the one who was assigned to collect it. However, when I was appealing my taxes on the Service Income Support Insurance Plan, Policy 901-102, I was confronted with a very bad problem. Despite all of my very cogent and persuasive arguments to the agent, Sylvia Dagenet, every time I would say, you know, uh, first of all, uh, my appeal is based on uh, the fact that the Income Tax Act is designed to tax wealth. And insurance cannot increase wealth because the compensation principle in insurance means that you can only recover 100% of your loss. So you're getting what you lost replaced. You're not getting new money. So you didn't have an increase in your wealth. So therefore, the Income Tax Act does not apply to payments like CISL. She said, good point. Now, I then moved on to more specific things. And I mean, I'm going from memory. I don't have notes in front of me, but I got all this stuff written into my head, like branded into my brain. I said, second of all, Income Tax Act Section 6 is the section of the Income Tax Act that Paranormal put in there in order to tax fringe benefits that were not included in employment. As I was a member of the Canadian Forces, which is part of the government, I highly doubt that the government would give us money over and above our T4 report of pay. She said, great point. Then I said, well, you know, even though the Income Tax Act taxes some long-term disability, 75% of long-term disability in Canada is tax-free. Did you know that? I didn't at the time. I kind of thought that it was only a few plans that were tax-free. But I saw in the 1997 uh, report in Parliament in the Hansard that the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Industry Association was answering questions, and they said that 75% of the long-term disability in Canada is tax-free. So although I highly doubt it, I'm going to take it to the bank because, I mean, they ought to have been telling the truth to whoever was asking the question that, for the record. So I said, you know, the purpose of... Uh, Income Tax Act Section 61F, I said, was after the 1966 Carter Royal Commission on Taxation, Carter recommended that uh, every transaction in Canada be taxed. 
Kind of like the GSD when you think of it. Uh, that just occurred to me. So, anyway, I said uh, he didn't, the government didn't decide to tax long-term disability wholesale prior to 1971 when it income, introduced Income Tax Act Section 61F. All long-term disability was tax-free just as life insurance is tax-free because, as far as I'm concerned, they're just two sides of the same coin. So I said, you know, they made two different... Uh, statutory conditions they put in there that it had to be periodic which CISB is normally periodic but in my particular case I said I didn't get it for the first time uh, until you know I applied for it in 2011 I didn't get it to 2013 so the initial lump sum that has to be tax-free because it's not periodic it doesn't fulfill the statutory condition now that's kind of like the CISB class action lawsuit when they finish that as far as I'm concerned there's no legal basis to tax it but I said, secondly, the other condition is that the employer must pay part of the premium. And although on paper the government pays 85% of the premium for the regular first person and 100% of the premium for the long-term for the reservist, to say that they pay it but not think that we earned it means that you're trying to say we're getting something for nothing, and everybody knows that's not true. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So I said the government didn't actually pay anything. It paid 100% on my behalf, and it paid 85% for the regular first person on their behalf. The regular first person also paid 15% on their own behalf, and therefore it was paid 100% by each of us. Now, IT, Income Tax Bulletin 428, published in 1979, says that when a person pays for their own long-term disability insurance, then it is tax-free. Now, therefore... According to the principle as per the Cunningham versus Wheeler Supreme Court of Canada 1994 case in which basically, you know, the, uh, the court said that Ms. Cooper, even though she only paid 30% of the premium, was considered to be have paid the entire cost of the premium because the employer could have paid her the other 70% and she would have had her own 30% and she could have just not had the insurance. That case was about damages, not taxes, but the principle is still the same. The judge said, and the courts should be noticed by the uh, government, I mean, the principle was that even though the employer paid part of the premium, it was really paid by the employee. So when you think about that, there's no need to have Income Tax Act Section 61F. In theory, you know, why do you need that? There's no such thing as income replacement. They try to call it income replacement, but really they're saying insurance. Now, insurance operates on that compensation principle, which I, again, refer you to. And in the uh, Glynn, Ontario Court of Appeal case, 1963, for example, they talked about the prime purpose of the compensation principle be to be in the, ensure the person who's injured gets 100% of the loss that they have suffered. Now, and you can't get more than 100%. So that's where I come back to the entire purpose of the Income Tax Act is to tax profit. profit. So it seems to me, on a general note, not on this specific section of my podcast, which is I'm starting to address the taxation aspects of you know veterans' issues, and in general, but... Uh, it seems to me that people are just trying to be technical and rigid and not apply common sense. So they want everything to be nice and clear, but they're actually making it more complicated. 
In theory, what they ought to do is repeal Section 61F of the Income Tax Act because after the Bo O'Reilly versus Flanagan Ontario Court of Appeal case in 1973, as I told Sylvia, there is no need for it anymore. Because in 1971, they said that any employer paid contribution to a premium uh, to a third-party insurance, even though they didn't state, that's implied. That has to be taxed as income, as a fringe benefit. But that is only if it's not included in T4 reported income. So as I explained to Sylvia, you can presume that until proven otherwise, that the government of Canada did not pay a payment over and above the T4 reported salary to the disabled veteran, because only the disabled veteran can get CISIP. So what I'm trying to say is that their whole premise is based on nothing. It's You can't build something out of nothing. You can't build a house on sand. So what needs to happen is an outbreak of common sense. Now, on a practical note, the amounts of money involved here are very insignificant. Canada collects about $340 billion, I believe, in taxes per year. I wish I didn't know all these facts about taxes. It's going to be a big part of my book that I'm planning on writing. There's about 87% of the government revenue is collected is taxes. So, again, the government wants to ensure that its main source of revenue is not harmed. So in cases that I've been reviewing, the courts have really been backing up the government in general. It's very rare that a, a person will win, it seems, when they're attacking the tax system. And on that note, and it's not about that appeal, but I'm talking in general, and this is an introduction sort of to the tax portion of my podcast, there's nothing wrong with trying to reduce your taxes legally. That's why I wrote 19 or 20 Canadian Veterans Tax Guides. I haven't been working much on it because I think I've covered most of them. But I did cover today. I put out a new one today. And I used to number them. I was trying to keep them in track and, and keep track of exactly what I wrote. And again, if I stammer and stutter here when I'm doing all this, I'm doing it right off the top of my head. I mean, I think I'm just trying to help out the government because I used to be a tax collector. Okay? The government needs taxes to run. I am not a tax protester. Getting back to that, actually, I'm kind of going all over the place, but I'll mention that. I'm trying to keep these podcasts fairly short, so I'm thinking about cluing this one up. But, during my ongoing discussions with Canada Revenue Agency, Sylvia Dagenet, she's an appeals officer. At least she was when I was talking to her. And she wasn't taking me seriously. I could tell. You know, you, you, you develop a sense of judgment as you're, if you're a public servant, like I was a tax collector for all those years and I was an officer in the military. And I could tell she wasn't taking me seriously. So at one point, she said to me, Mr. Edwards, I think you're a tax protester. Now to that... I hope you, the listener, and I'm going to presume the listener has some military roots, a military background. I was greatly insulted. So, I also have ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. And when I get upset, I get icily calm. So I said to her, without raising my voice too much, and remember, I didn't write it down, but 
I said, you know, I said words to the effect that if you think that I would sign up to serve my nation at the risk of my life and health, where I could get died after I, I could get killed or get disabled when I was subordinate to the orders that could get me killed, and then that you would think that I would then, after becoming disabled in the service of my country, try to save a few cents on taxes when I was willing to die for it, then you have insulted my honor, my integrity, and you can go fuck yourself, I said, and hung up on her. Now, I'm getting a little bit heated again. I mean, I, I try to keep things calm, but, you know, I see this a lot. And I think what's happening is the people that are in the power in government are looking at people like myself. And I was arguing, not sympathy. I wasn't saying, okay, guys, uh, you know, I don't want to be taxed because I was disabled in the service of my country. No. I would never do that. I just don't think it's kosher. I was arguing legal points, okay? If I have legal points where I say that you can't tax it because of this, you can't tax it because of that, you can't tax it because of this, at the end of that call, before she called me a tax, uh, a tax protester, I did say, you know, Sylvia, why, why did after this entire call where you could have said, some, when, I, when I mentioned this point, you could have said, no, you're wrong. When I said that point, she said, you're mistaken. She could have said she could have said. But she agreed with everything I said for two hours. Now, anybody who's listening to me might be reading my stuff on Facebook. And they might know that I have a book plan. And they might also think that I'm a long-winded person. And I kind of am. I hate to regret it, uh, to admit it. But I shouldn't have to be, okay, if they were doing this right. Because here's what she said. I said, why are you doing this? She says, the Income Tax Act requires me. Income Tax Act, Section 61F, requires me to tax this as income. You know, it doesn't. It, it, it just doesn't, okay? No, no. Income Tax Act, Section 61F, requires a person, not her. She's an appeals officer. It requires Canada Revenue Agency to tax if certain conditions are met. Now, if those conditions aren't met, which was what I was attacking, then there's no legal requirement to charge taxes against that insurance money. I hear the word income replacement a lot, and I'll, I'll segue right into that. Income replacement? No. Income Tax Act Section 61F has a heading above it, and that doesn't say income replacement. It says employment insurance. Now, to that, I would say, no, no. The service income support insurance plan is not an employment insurance, which, as I understand it, is a form of social insurance that provides short-term relief, and it's not true insurance. It is just an insurance against something that's not really random. Because normally insurance is against something that you can control. It has to be a contingent event. Now, your employer plans... A layoff and then lays you off. There's nothing unplanned. There's nothing contingent about that. There's nothing random about that. That was a deliberate choice. Now, it also seems that, you know, uh, that they're just trying to have everybody do it this way. 
Because as I said, I mean, I'm looking into this stuff and I find out that 75% of the long-term disability in Canada is tax-free. Well, I saw one case, Altman, Ontario Court of Appeal. And in that case, the lady who was on long-term disability, it said in the case that although we know that the employer and the employee contributed to the plan premiums, it is received tax-free. Now, you see... Anybody else would try to use that for their advantage. And I guess I might point out the problem that in theory, that should have been taxed. Okay, listen, if you say that the employer pays part of the premium, then it definitely falls within the category of what you call an employer-sponsored benefit. Now, I'll segue right into that because I've been attacking recently the employer-sponsored long-term disability clawback as per Veterans Wellbeing Act Regulation, Section 22D, in which a veteran by the name of Sean Lewis, after service, he serves from 1990 to 1996, after service, he went to work in the private sector. He worked for a few years, and then he became disabled. When he became disabled, he had a long-term disability group insurance through Suncor. Now, because it's a long-term disability that's arranged through an employer, you would almost think that it should be taxed. But it was a high-risk job, he told me. So basically, it seems like they organized an insurance just for simplicity, and they made it a group policy, but it wasn't really the same as, uh, you know, you buying your own private insurance. Because I've been reading different things about the long-term disability, and it's not about taxes, it's just about long-term disability in general, I'll make this comment. And it says that the government, well, no, my mistake, it's not the government. Taxes, the bane of our existence. Recently, on the 24th of August, 2018, I was at a town hall uh, meeting that Veterans Affairs was having on the pension for life. Now, I view my area of expertise to be taxation. I didn't want to stand up at all and ask any questions because I'm here right doing this uh, podcast. And you might think that I'm a wannabe celebrity, but I hate attention. You might not appreciate it, but I hate everything about this stuff. So I wouldn't have probably spoken up at all, but I had my cousin there. I didn't know he was going there, Logan Bennett. So I decided, after I heard him ask a question, to screw up the nerve, stand up and ask a question. So I got the mic, and I said, where's the effect of minister? The Pension Act pension is tax-free. Tort damages are paid tax-free. Workers' compensation is tax-free. How come Canada taxes the new veterans' charter, the benefits that a veteran gets? And he looked kind of relieved, you know. He looked like he had... An answer for me. And, you know, I've been talking to his office, not him, but people in his office about this kind of stuff for years. So I think he thought he had an answer. So he looked relieved. And he looked at me, and I'm going to try to get this later under the Privacy Act if I have to. And I'd like to get a copy of that audio recording to make sure I'm correct. And he said, we called CRA, and they told us that's how it had to be. Now, you know, that might have solved the problem. When he, if he had told that to somebody else who asked the question. But I know the difference. So I stood back up even though I didn't want to. And I said, but Minister, Finance Canada sets tax policy. 
and Canada Revenue Agency is only supposed to enforce the tax policy that Finance Canada sets. Now, you see, I didn't call him a fucking idiot, but hopefully the people that were there knew that, you know, if you're going to do things right, you don't call the wrong people. So you don't call CRA about tax policy, which is, you know, about how to tax a disabled veteran or whether you shouldn't or you should tax a disabled veteran, which is a matter of policy. When you call CRA, it's about how to administer the tax, not how to set tax policy. In fact, I would even go further and say that the minister, while he is the minister, can send a memo to Finance Canada and say, we aren't going to tax veterans. And you know, it's not that big of a deal because Income Tax Act Section 81 1D is the authority for the Pension Act pension to be paid free of tax. Now, I got a secret for you. Mark my words, I think I'm right. I found out later that the Pension Act pension's basic pension is set because of the cleaners and helpers after tax income. Now, in my mind, and I think I'm a logical person, if you set the rate at whatever is paid after tax, then you can't legitimately say it's not taxed. If you had set, we're going to set it at the gross amount of the person's pay and then paid it without tax, then you can say you paid it without taxing it. But if you set the rate at a lower amount by setting it at the after-tax income of the cleaner and helper, then I don't think that the Pension Act is truly tax-free. So it's like somebody put their mind to obeying the letter of the law without looking at the spirit of Income Tax Act Section 81 1D. And with that in mind, you see, I've been telling the minister over the past several years that even though I don't get a Pension Act pension, to treat the people that get the Pension Act pension fairly, they must add about 30% to gross it up for taxes. Now, that's one thing. The other thing I mentioned to the minister was about the tort damages. Now, tort damages are paid for the compensated person who has been injured by another person. So you have to actually establish fault. There's no automatic right to payment. Someone has to wrong you. So if someone wrongs you and then you sue them and establish fault, then you get compensated. You get paid back for the injury. Now, those payments have to be made without income tax applying. And it, it goes back to a case in 1966 called Jennings. And in that case, they said that uh, capital payments are not to be subject to income taxes. Now, it's kind of common sense to me, but I've been studying this for a long time. That's because the payment is not a payment of income. If you are working serving some employer and you get a payment then you had to have a charge of income tax put against it because that's income but if you get hurt by someone else and that happens to be while you're in service to Canada and then Canada doesn't have a system where we can sue the person who hurt us sort of like that Omar Cotter thing probably shouldn't bring that in but I think that you know that whole case is a mess people seem to want to not pay him because of who he is or whatever it is but if he's been wrong by Canada he's owed money that money is capital. It's not income. So they can't get a percentage of it back. So the thing is, is in, the, in the Jennings case, there were things like the person's being compensated for their loss, but they also brought up the fact that this is a tort lawsuit. It's not between, you know, it's not between the government and the person getting some amount of money. I mean, 
they said that the uh, Department of National Revenue is not present at this case. So therefore, taxes are not really an issue. But what they weren't saying is that the insurer who was paying the amount of money in the Jennings case just wanted to save money. They didn't really want to send the money to the tax department. They really wanted to just take it into account so that they wouldn't have to pay it to the person. You see, that's kind of evil in my mind. They weren't saying, you know, let's take the money out of this settlement and send it off to the Canada Revenue Agency because he owes taxes. No, no, they wanted to just reduce their payment. So, you know, it didn't really matter what the judge said. The judge was really calling them out and saying they're a bunch of idiots. But in 1978, the case was reaffirmed in the Enders versus Grandin Toy Supreme Court of Canada case. And they cited the Jennings case and they said, you know, it's not lost earnings that's being replaced. It is lost ability to earn. You see, your body's like a robot. That's my analogy. Your body's like a robot, and you can order it to do whatever you want it to do to make money for you. So if your robot gets broken, then the person has to either replace the robot's part, which is impossible, so they have to give you money in its place. So that's the whole idea of tort compensation. Now, workers' compensation is similar, but the caveat is, is workers' comp is doing the same thing that the Pension Act does. Everybody's ripping off the person who's been disabled, and nobody's telling the person. So workers' compensation, at least in Newfoundland, what they do is they pass a law that said they deem a certain amount to be taken out for taxes, they deem a certain amount to be taken out for CPP, and they deem a certain amount to be taken out for EI. And then they pay a percentage, whatever the hell they set in law, of that deemed amount. Now, again, getting back to the earnings loss benefit and other payments, I mean, one of my key arguments, and I only thought about this after I did an appeal, and I wish I had a thought about it when I was talking to that auditor, uh, auditor, no, uh, appeals agent, Sylvia Dagenet. Had I been talking to her, and if I had a thought about it at that time, again, I'm kind of repeating myself, but hey, I'm not a professional. I think I'm kind of professional or professional-like, but I'm not a professional broadcaster or anything, so I'll make mistakes. Anyway, had I thought about it at the time, I would have said, you know, Sylvie, there's an important principle in tax law, and it says that if Parliament puts in there a specific section of the law about a specific circumstance, then that overrides a general law about taxation. <clears throat> now, I then would have went on to say, well, Income Tax Act Section 61F is the general provision in the fringe benefits part of the Income Tax Act where the amount of money that's paid over and above the person's normal salary, which is reported under T4, is to be deemed included in their income, and therefore, well, that increases their earnings in that year. But, you know, the specific section for a person disabled in service, that is Section 81.1D. So we have a section that says that the income tax act does not apply because the government of Canada said so because you know it passes law and that specific provision only applies to a certain group of people citizens who volunteer to serve their country at risk to life and limb and should they become disabled and not killed then any amount of money that's paid to them is exempt from the charge of income taxes now I can go further I can tell you the basis of that in my professional opinion is that the payment is a capital payment. 
And I can say that because I was reading in a Hansard about the Pension Act pension and its origin. And they said it was about the ability to earn, to earn. And I know about the Jennings case and the Anders case. So I can then infer one fact from another fact. And I can say, well, if tort damages are capital and the Pension Act was to replace tort damages, well, obviously, Income Tax Act Section 81D is just the codification of the common law tort damages are capital, and capital cannot be taxed as income. You see, Canada has five different silos. They call them silos because they're not supposed to interact with each other. We have the silo for employment income, silo for office income, and when I say office, I mean office of employment. It's property, not like uh, employment contract. They're not. That's not property. Then there's employment from business, and then there's employment from property, and then there's the silo for employment from capital gains. Now, notice I didn't say capital replacement. I said capital gains. So if they gave you a million dollars and your body was only worth a half a million, then they might try to tax it under that clause because it's a half million dollar capital gain. But the fact of the matter, again, is that nobody knows how to value your body. So if you get damaged by somebody else, if you get hurt, you're walking across the road, a car hits you, say you lose two legs, how much are those legs worth? Well, if you ask a veteran, they'd probably point to the meat chart, you know, the table of disabilities or whatever instrument that Canada wrote. But, you know, that's just arbitrary figures put on a piece of paper. Normally what happens if you get hurt is you go to court and you prove to the judge how much you're worth and then you basically get whatever each person's individual worth is. And I mean, you can't take into account all kinds of different things that might happen, contingent events, the person might die earlier, they might get a more of an education or something or whatever. But it's supposed to be sort of as accurate, I guess, as you can. It's kind of like crystal ball gazing is the way the judges put it in the Anders case. Because when you look at future earnings, it's much more difficult than looking at past earnings. Past earnings, you can look at what the person made. And if they missed a year or two of work and they were getting paid this rate, it was really simple. But what about future earnings? Well, the future earnings, well, that's going to be pretty difficult to figure out. In the Andrews case, he was making $800 a week, or month, month. And then the judge set the rate at $1,200 a month, a year, a month. Gee, I mean, I'll get the hang of this one of these days. Maybe I'll do up a script. But they assigned him, he was a young man, and he became a paraplegic because of an accident. So when they were looking at it, instead of basing it at what he made, $800 a month, they used $1,200 a month to gauge his quantum of damages. Now, you see, that amount is kind of important. Because the government of Canada in the CISA program and the Earnings Loss Benefit program pay 75%. Now, CISIP is a non-indemnity and contributory insurance, so therefore it means that it's not the same thing at all. In fact, what you're supposed to get is, say, for example, you get the Pension Act pension, you're also entitled to get the CISIP long-term disability. And that's simply because the CISIP program, that is a non-indemnity payment, which means it doesn't compensate for anything. It's paid in contract. It should be tax-free, but it's not. That was the basis of my, uh, my appeal to CRA. The fact of the matter is, once again, the government of Canada put in that law and they're presuming that they're right when they're not. And because they tax CISIP under Section 61F, they put into law the earnings loss benefit to be taxed under Section 61F.1. Now you see, 
That's pretty stupid of them because, again, Income Tax Act Section 811D is the more specific provision. And they now have set up a conflict in the law. Because they put it there as if the earnings loss benefit or the income replacement benefit as it is known now, but I don't trust people who keep changing the name on something. It shows that they can't be trusted. Why didn't they choose the name income replacement benefit back in 2006? They called it uh, the earnings loss benefit back then, but there were three instances of when I did a word search where they called it the income replacement benefit. So, you know, when the government says under the pension for life, I'm getting kind of off track, I'm talking about taxes, but when they talk about the income replacement benefit being a new benefit, they're lying. Flat out lying. Don't believe them. They're full of shit. Tell them to shag off. Basically, the income replacement benefit is the same thing as before, the earnings loss benefit, and neither should be taxed because, well, they're not income. They might be a capital payment. You know, you don't get the full amount. You only get 90%. So you haven't made a profit. You were before making 100% of your earnings. After you become injured, you only get 90%. So how can they dare say that it has to be taxed? Now, on a very weird note, and I am hesitating to use this fact, I did an analysis up from the Office of the Veterans Ombudsman report. And they said, you know, basically you came out pretty good if the government would move to a 90% rate. But you know, they were wrong. I say that with uh, absolute certainty because of my expertise. I worked it out and the government actually gets more taxes on a 90% earning loss benefit than they do if you paid the person when they were still serving and still healthy 100% of their earnings. And the reason is simple. Canada's Income Tax Act allows for the deduction of things that you don't get to keep and enjoy. They might say it's a different reason, but that's the real reason. And the Canadian Forces Superannuation Act contribution, you don't get to keep and enjoy that, so they allow you to take it off your income taxes before taxes apply. The Canada Pension Plan contribution, they do the same thing. The EI, same thing. CISIP, eh, not so much. So they take those things into account and then reduce your taxable income and then you get charged an amount of tax. So when you get the 90% rate, you're actually getting more tax on that 90% because by the time you take off that Canadian Forces Superannuation Act, the Canada Pension Plan, the EI, the CISIP, the DIS, the DAT, you ended up paying less taxes on all that net income than you do on the net earnings loss benefit. So I find that really ironic that the government can do kind of this kind of thing and can actually generate more taxes. It's crazy. Kind of goes to show what I've been saying. But anyway, on that note, I will mention before I sign off, I'm getting tired of this and I'll probably have a game in a second. I got my game up. I'm looking at a ship called the Leningrad Destroyer. A lot of the, uh, the ships in World of Warships that I play are fictional. They never really made it to the light of day, but hey, Got a new camouflage for it. So anyway, getting back to what I was saying. One of these days, this whole mess is going to come tumbling down into their lap. And I'll use a recent example, a recent change. The permanent impairment allowance was brought into law in 2006. And it was supposed to be paid to severely disabled veterans and supposed to be for life. And uh, it was taxed. 
And in the Canada Gazette in 2006, on April 5th, they said, even though it's taxable, you'll get more money than under the exceptional incapacity allowance, which was very similar. But you know, that capital thing comes into play again. It should never have been taxed. So what did they do? In 2019, they made it tax-free. But before they did, they changed the name to the career impact allowance. And then before they did, they changed the name to the additional pain and suffering compensation. So all of these name changes, I suspect, but I don't have the absolute proof, but that's the way the law works. If I, if I went to court and I was proving this, I'd lay out my evidence and I'd ask the judge to rule on my 51% right. If I'm 51% right, he rules in my favor, and then it's 100% true. That's just the way the civil law system works. So I would say, you know, Your Honor, the exceptional incapacity allowance is tax-free, the Pension Act pension is tax-free, the government passed Income Tax Act Section 811D, uh, the government doesn't tax CISIP. Uh, all, all the insurances mm -hmm. like CISIP unless you know the employer pays part of the premium. If a person has a personal long-term disability insurance, then it's tax-free. So I would point out all of these things, which would be part of the legislative history. Then I'd say, well, in 2006, the government decided to tax it out of the blue. Then I'd bring in Income Tax Act, uh, Income Tax Bulletin 365R2 which says that a payment of a settlement or damages are not to be taxed. Now, they don't come out and say it's capital, but I know that's the reason. Then I would point out IT Income Tax Bulletin 397 or IT 379. I, I always get those two mixed up. But that's the one on disability pensions under the uh, Pension Act. But, you know, I think I could actually make it applicable to the Canadian Forces Superannuation Act to save my pension. Because a pension is a pension, and they talk about in the um, in the income tax bill, and they talk about a service pension on the basis of a disability. So if you get a disabled Canadian Forces Superannuation Act pension, I think someone should challenge that sometime and say, you know, why should I get, like if I was getting a pension act pension, I'd be tax-free, but yet I get a disabled Canadian Forces Superannuation Act pension, and you tax me on it. What's the difference? You know, make, put them on the spot. But in the meantime, I have all these ideas, and I really don't think they would hurt the government because, you know, my opinion is they're getting money they shouldn't get. That's the bottom line. They're getting money that they shouldn't get. And, for example, I'll leave you with this. There's one issue I'm looking at called double taxation, and it has to do with the Canada Pension Plan Disability, say, uh, repayment, under the CISA program or the Earnings Loss Benefit program. And, you know, you paid the money on the CISA program when you shouldn't have in the first place. So you paid taxes on that amount. Now, then you're required to send in the form for discount the pension plan. You get approved, say, and then you have to send the money to the manually CISA D&D people. And then they send you a T4A to you, even though you didn't get to keep money. The money goes directly to someone else oftentimes. So... I asked the listener, why should you have to pay taxes on money you didn't get to keep and enjoy? That goes against a 1972 Supreme Court of Canada case I read. That in order to be taxed, the person has to have absolute ownership of the property, the money, whatever was put to them. So, in effect, all these clawbacks are actually, I believe, going to help screw the government over. I shouldn't say that. It's poor words. It should help 
make restitution to the disabled veteran who has to get repaid the amount of money that they were really not supposed to have taken into account at all. And on that note, I will also mention, and this is almost a whole different podcast, but I'll mention it in passing. I was reading in the 1999 Finance Canada Tax Expenditure Report. Really good information. It's stuff to put you to sleep, by the way. And it mentioned that clawbacks, income testing, clawbacks, same thing, are a form of tax. And the reasons, I had to work it out myself, okay? I didn't have it, saw, I didn't see it there in their report, but I worked it myself. You know, if the government has a bunch of money in taxes that is already collected, and then it's thinking about paying this benefit to you, but it decides to claw back money if you're already getting money from something else. So therefore, it saves for the taxpayer by taking into account this or that, and then they have less direct expenditures of the tax money they already have collected. So the government can save in two ways. It can use income testing to pay out less, and that's a form of taxation. Or it can tax a certain amount of money if it doesn't use income testing or clawbacks. But you know, right now, they're getting it both. So the person might be charged tax in the form of a clawback. And then the net amount, if there's any left over, is taxed under the Income Tax Act. Now, Canada has a policy of not taxing a person twice. And that's a very good policy. You should never have to pay taxes twice on the same amount of income. But in the CISA program and the Earnings Loss Benefit program and possibly other programs, the government of Canada is doing a form of tax that's not cleared at its tax, income testing, or clawbacks. And then it goes ahead and uses the Income Tax Act to tax the rest. Now, under the CISA program, it complicates matters by sending it in on a form issued by Manulife, which is a form of deception. So I have no time for deceptive practices. If they want to send it in and have it all done by the book, then you send it in on Government of Canada, T4A. And then we'll see what happens. But right now, they send it in on a false T4, false T4A. So that's one of my pet peeves. The way I look at it is that if you want the soldier to trust the nation and put his life at risk and fight as hard as he can to win a battle, then you shouldn't lie to him. Don't tell him Man Your Life is the insurer when Man Your Life's not the insurer. Or you know what? When I just find out I'm, that you're lying to me, I won't go into battle and fight as hard as I can. If I can find a corner get away with it, I'll probably sit down, have a smoke. If I smoke, I don't. And then I'll wait for the battle to be over. All well, these bastards who lied to me sent me into battle and they, they don't trust me. They don't want me to believe things, you know, see things as they really are. Why should I trust them? The battle's probably corrupt. They probably want me to go to war to make some money off me somehow. I don't know. I'm just trying to say, you want us to trust you, you give us reason to trust you. Okay? Don't lie to me. Bad enough that if you lie to me and I don't find out about it, you never should have done it in the first place. But if I find out that you lied to me, then I'm not going to trust you ever again. Anyway, I'll sign off on that note. While they're not taxes... The Canada Pension Plan and the EI contribute uh, premiums are basically similar, but a contribution is much different than a tax. A tax has, can be used for whatever the government sees fit. You might be a 
pacifist and you don't want the country to use your taxes to go to war. Too damn bad. The government, once they're elected, can use tax money however it sees fit to allocate its priority. However, a contribution is a much different animal. A contribution is, according to Section 21 of the Financial Administration Act, required to be used for the purpose with which it was collected. So the Canada Pension Plan contribution, the EI contribution, the Canadian Forces Superannuation Act contribution, those are all to be used just for what they were collected for. Now, the government pulled a fast one, I believe, with the employment insurance premiums. They allow themselves to use it for general revenues. Well, good and bad. They assume the responsibility for the plan. It's supposed to be a self-funded plan, but because they use it in general revenue, I think they're on the hook if the revenues fall short in the plan. Anyway, where I was going with this is that one specific instance in which I want to catch the government in doing something wrong has to do with Canada pension plan contributions and employment insurance premiums. It goes back to several cases. In 2002, the Université de Laval Federal Court of Appeal case had a, uh, an employer, University de Laval, and Canada Revenue Agency at odds because Canada Revenue Agency said they were required to take EI premiums out of the wage loss replacement plan that the uh, employer had. Now, it was being paid through Manulife, similar to the Army's long-term disability insurance, and the court did not accept that Manulife was the insurer didn't accept that EI premiums weren't required. Now, I think the court was wrong there, but, you know, no one's listened to me. The reason I say that the court is wrong is because the people were getting money from the employer, yes, but the employer had two hats on. So the employer was also the insurer. So if the Canada Revenue Agency had looked at it and said, you know, we know that the employer is paying the uh, former employee, but there are no ties to service. There's no service being performed. There's no orders being given. The pay is not being, the money is not being paid because the person rendered service and a debt is owed from the employer to the employee, either under a collective agreement or an individual contract. The money was being paid under a separate contract, not a general contract. And the separate contract was a contract of insurance. So what the employer should have done was pay the money as the insurer with no EI premiums, and the court was wrong. That's my opinion. I will stick to it. The reason I say that is because it would be absurd for someone like me, who used to get CISIP and now I don't, but to get a record of earnings from CISIP because they were supposed to take EI premiums out. They don't, by the way. But there's a cost for this for the employer because every time a person say they paid $100 to the employment insurance plan, and I'm using that just arbitrary figure, then $140 has to be paid by the employer. The employee pays $100, the employer pays $140. So $240 would be required in that hypothetical example. So employers don't want to have to contribute to the EI plan. It's a cost. So the CISIP program administered through Manulife, they are not obeying the common law because it's the exact same thing as the University de Laval. Now, 
A year later, there was a case called the National Bank of Canada Federal Court of Appeal, and the exact same thing happened with the exact same alleged insurer. And in that case, the judge said, Manulife is certainly not a third-party insurer, and it's not even a, an insurer. They only administer the plan for National Bank of Canada. But relying on the previous case a year before, the University de Laval, Federal Court of Appeal 2002 case, they upheld the decision to have EI uh, premiums taken out. Once again, I say that's stupid. Then they tried it again in 2010 against the Toronto Transit Commission. So CRA, in what I think is a, a, a cash grab, trying to get more money for the government of Canada, you know, for these plans, this Canada Pension Plan and the EI plan. So this time, Canada Revenue Agency, you know, the government's official position, they failed. The courts didn't accept their position, and they rejected it. So the government of Canada, using Bill C-13, brought in uh, the Canada Pension Plan Act uh, change. And because they couldn't win in the courts, they changed the law arbitrarily. Now, I say that arbitrarily because the way I look at it is that if you take a case to court and you submit your authority, you submit your case to the power of the court to decide, then you have submitted yourself to their final authority. So, should the court rule against you, you cannot then wield your power as the lawmaker because the case was already before the courts and you lost. To do so would create a constitutional crisis of a sort, although no one seemed to have noticed but me, because you're basically saying that no one can tell you what to do. Now, in a constitutional common law democracy, we're always supposed to have someone to appeal to if we are wronged. If our rights have been infringed, we are supposed to have somebody to seek a remedy from. So the Toronto Transit Commission shouldn't have happened. The, the Bill C-13, I mean, shouldn't have happened. What the government of Canada should have done was respect the rule of law and respect the court's decision. The court always has the residual power to review government decisions and government law. So is CISIP, Manulife, DND, taking out Canada Pension Plan contributions? Why no? Why aren't they? In the exact same way that the EI premiums are done, but it's about it's 100% each. The way the Canada Pension Plan contributions work is that the employer is required to take out 50% and the employee is required to pay 50%. But the way it really works is that the employer's share is meant for the employee. And the employer, I believe... All employers across Canada probably falsely believe that this is a tax, but no. The government of Canada created a very confusing situation. In the Gronofsky case, Supreme Court of Canada 2000, they said that the Canada Pension Plan is a self-funded plan. And by that, well, that's a Supreme Court of Canada ruling that's saying it's self-funded. If an employer thinks that it funds part of the plan, it's wrong. A lot of these things have to do with legal technicalities and I've been meaning to post about this recently, so I'll make a po make a, a podcast here instead. Let's look at the 
And it's not exactly about tax, but it is. But let me use the example of the public service health care plan. The public service health care plan, PSHCP, is uh, administered by Sun Life. But it's admittedly, I don't have to prove it, it's admitted to be an administrative services only policy. Now what people don't seem to realize is that the people of, uh, who pay this is not the taxpayers of Canada, but the employees and the retirees. Because the government of Canada doesn't put a cent into it other than what it takes in the form of service from the people who are public servants and soldiers and RCMP members. And for the retiree, they take a direct payment from the various pensions. So while it appears that the government of Canada is paying these payments for, say, drugs and massage and whatever a person might have to pay, no, it's really coming from the person's own insurance plan. And the principles of insurance apply. The way it works is that everybody pays in, but only some have to use it. The healthy people are subsidizing the unhealthy people, sort of. But my point is, is on paper it appears that Sun Life pays, but really it's the government of Canada slash public servants, RCMP, Canadian Forces members, retirees. Now, I'm a stickler for accuracy, legal accuracy. I don't like deception. I don't like the fact that Manulife appears to be Manulife when under the CISA program it's really the government of Canada. I don't like the fact that Sun Life... <coughs> They appear to be the insurer for the public service health care plan, but they're not. Now, that has a direct implication, and I'll tell you how. I've got a head for numbers. Section 118.23a of the Income Tax Act deems a payment made by an employer for an employee on a health-related matter to be claimable under the medical expense tax credit. Now, if you take away Sun Life as the apparent payer for the public service health care plan, then you have the government of Canada, the employer, per se, of the public servant or retired, whatever, disabled veteran RCMP member, making a payment on behalf of their employee. And according to the law, it's deemed to be a payment of the employee for tax purposes. So, I mean, I don't think very many people realize that, so that was my very first Canadian Veterans Tax Guide. And... The reason I made those tax guides was to make people aware of things that they weren't aware of and not to claim things based on insider knowledge or trickery because one of the main things about tax law is that there is nothing unethical or illegal in legally minimizing your taxes. So if you have medical expenses paid by your employer and Section 118.23a of the Income Tax Act wasn't written by you, then there's no reason why you can't use it. Now, if the person at CRA, in their infinite wisdom as part of the executive, if they decide that this is not good enough, then, you know, we have a problem because they aren't elected. They aren't judges. You see, in... This democracy of ours, we're supposed to have three different branches of government. We're supposed to have the lawmakers, the executive, and the judiciary to review the other two to make sure they're in line with the law. And if 
kind of the revenue agency decides, some officer, some public servant decides that, you know, Section 118.23a is not to their liking. Well, they're not a lawmaker. Their opinion doesn't matter. They're not a judge. So their interpretation of what the lawmaker put into law is, isn't relevant. One of my main themes in my book and these podcasts is that the bureaucrats are gone out of control. The bureaucrats think that they're God. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to have checks and balances in a democracy. That's why we have three branches. We don't just have one king who says something and does it. What we're supposed to have is reasonable decisions made by a reasonable government based on reasonable laws. And then we vote to put those people in there. And they're not supposed to be unreasonable. Now, getting back to what I started with, the Canada Pension Plan being a contribution, EI being a contribution, the Canadian Forces Superannuation Act being a contribution, over time it seems that the government has forgotten that. And they kind of view these things as taxes. In fact, Prime Minister Harper, a man who I'm giving a little bit more slack to these days because of the revelation or inspiration or brainstorm about <clears throat> the uh, executive, the bureaucrats actually doing a lot of these things that I've discovered to be problems. I was blaming a lot of stuff on him when he was in power for 10 years, but maybe it was the bureaucrats. But I did see him, and I do think he's an economist, so I think he ought to know better than to consider the Canada Pension Plan attacks. And I saw a news story where he was talking about the payroll taxes and stuff like the Canada Pension Plan. Now, with respect to Bill C-13, I have another very specific complaint that no one else seems to have noticed but me again. And laws are not supposed to be retroactive. You're not supposed to pass a law on Friday that said what you did on Monday was illegal what you did on Monday was legal, but they pass a law retroactively that make it illegal. There's a principle against that, and don't ask me to spit out exactly what it is. I just know you're not supposed to make retroactive laws to rule what was legal to be illegal. And what the government of Canada did with Bill C-13 is that they passed it in 2011 under Bill C-13, and they made it retroactive to 2006. Now, I don't know if they... Went to, went to 2006 on purpose because that was the year of the new Veterans Charter, which I believe is unconstitutional, totally. Not one part of it have I seen that can be justified. Everything I look into on it is totally crazy, absurd. Section 52, one of the Constitution Act might be able to take care of that because we're supposed to have reasonable laws in a democracy. But... Uh, the thing is, is they made it retroactive to 2006, and I don't know why. I mean, don't they have Department of Justice lawyers to advise them and put their hand up when somebody wants to make a retroactive law and say, you know, we can't do that. It violates this principle or that law or whatever. But the thing is, they did, and they got away with it so far. So one of my main things here is to expose how the government of Canada is doing things wrong and getting back to what I started to, and maybe I'll title this uh, episode Bill C-13.
and the injustice inflicted upon Canadian employers. Because the government of Canada is not doing what it tells other people it has to do. Now that undermines the rule of law, I hope the listener, if there are any, appreciates. You can't say, do what I say, not what I do. What kind of country would we have then? We'd have a country of anarchy. What we need to have is consistent rules applied consistently. Just rules, just law, and not have people just looking at their own self-interest and trying to avoid the consequences of their actions. That's another one of my my themes. I think of a song by Great Big Sea, a Newfoundland band. I'm from Newfoundland, and if I could sing Word of Schmick, I'd sing a song, a little passage from that called Consequence Free. But you know, I can't sing, and these people don't seem to know how to make good law. Good afternoon. Captain Matt Edwards here with another one of my short podcasts. I uh, accidentally called the Public Service Alliance of Canada this morning. Uh, I was served with a cease and desist letter not long ago, and I had decided to forget about all that stuff and work on the veteran stuff. Now, then I was talking to someone at Treasury Board Secretariat, and they confirmed to me something I already knew, that the Sun Life uh, in the Administrative Service Only Policy Public Service Healthcare Plan, the employer is actually the insurer. Now, I knew that anyway. That's the way it works in any administrative services only policy. But, unlike the long-term disability insurance, uh, the Sun Life Policy 12,500G, they actually admit the public service health care plan is employer paid. But you see, Sun Life pays the payments technically. Now, I had written a tax guide. I have a group on Facebook called Observation Post Tax Saving Ideas. And my very first Canadian Veterans Tax Guide was about the medical expense tax credit and the fact that Parliament passed a law in the Income Tax Act, Section 118.23a, which deems a payment made by an employer to be made by the employee for the purposes of the medical expense tax credit. Now, I had discovered this in the medical expense tax credit folio, tax folio. So there used to be income tax bulletins, and Canada Revenue Agency is updating those with folios. So I had found in section 1.15 that part about them deeming it to be made by you if your employer made a payment. Now, if Sun Life was actually an insurer instead of just an administrative services only administrator, then my advice on the tax side would not work. But because Canada pays through Sun Life, then the employer actually pays, and therefore we can claim all of our uh, drug costs, massage, glasses, whatever is covered under the public service health care, we can claim it all. Now, some people have tried this and failed, and some people have tried this and succeeded. So it seems to be hit or miss. So that's never a good thing. The Income Tax Act clearly states that this is the case. So anybody at CRA who decides not to allow it 
they are basically breaking their own law. You see, the people that work for CRA are not supposed to be able to ignore the law passed by Parliament. So, I'll call it quits on this short medical expense tax credit folio in a second. Actually, what I meant was I called, after I discovered this from talking to the guy at the Treasury Board Secretariat, I decided to share it with my old union. So I called the Public Service Alliance of Canada, a guy I've been speaking to in Ottawa, by the name of Toby Castingay. Now, the person I was talking to first said he wasn't, uh, she didn't see him. Then she saw him come out of his room, out of his office. And then she said, hold on, I'll pass you through. Then the line went dead. So I don't know if it got lost, disconnected, or if they hung up on me, because I had forgotten about the cease and desist order that that union had served me with. Now, I then called back, and I think I left a voicemail. And then I sent him an instant message on my Facebook, uh, you know, social media stuff. And then I posted it to my Facebook group. Now, a couple hours later, I'm here having an online game. I had a smoke of uh, that marijuana stuff. I'm trying to get, you know, use it for medical purposes, even though I don't have a prescription yet. So I'm trying to relax, forget about stuff. I open up my drawer on my desk and I saw this cease and desist letter. And then I said, oh, shit. I violated that letter. I wonder if they're going to call the police, like they said in that letter. So I called a guy at the police station that I know, a media guy, so I bounced the idea off him. I said, wouldn't it have to be more than one communication to be harassment? And wouldn't the content of the communication be vitally important? He said, yeah, but he was busy. So I then called the lawyer for the union. I hope he charges them for some billable hours. So then I discussed it with him. I told him I had called the union to try to help him out to give them information about some information I developed from Treasury Board Secretariat. The purpose of the call was not to harass. The purpose of the call was to inform the union about how to help those union members save money on taxes. So I hope that's the end of it, but you know, I don't trust liars. Now, the Public Service Alliance Canada, the guy I was in, uh, talking to uh, about on the cease and desist letter to give a name of one person I'm allowed to contact. When I was talking to him last, he lied to me. I asked him if there was anybody on the National Joint Council Disability Insurance Board of Management from the union, the Public Service Alliance Canada. He said no. Now later, I googled that, and I found out that at least in 2017, there was a man by the name of James Infantino from the Public Service Alliance Canada as their board member on the Disability Insurance Board of Management. Now, I later put that question to the rival union, the Professional Institute of Public Service of Canada, and instead of denying it, they said they did have someone on the board. But then when I brought up the issue of obvious conflict of interest, they clammed up. Now, to explain that, the Disability Insurance Board has a lot to do. They're the directing minds of the policy. If the unions are on that, they help set the way the insurance works. So they allow clawbacks against their former disabled members. They set the premiums. They do all these other things. So they obviously have a conflict of interest because, well, they're supposed to represent their union members, but they're also representing the plan and the employer. So you have divided loyalties. Anyway, I managed to keep this fairly short, six minutes and 40 seconds. Take care.
Good evening, Captain Matt Edward Retired here with another one of these short podcasts. I did up a letter today for leading seaman retired Sean Kareem, and I asked that the T5 issued by Manulife in 2013 from the class action lawsuit settlement be deleted from his income tax file. Now, <clears throat> there's two things that occur to me, at least two things. The first is that the interest on damages should not be included as income. It is not income from an investment. After all, it's not like Sean put money into Manulife and they paid him money because they took his money into account and savings and gave him interest. However, the main point of this really short podcast is that the government of Canada paid damages to Sean Kareem about $46,000. But on the paperwork, on the T5 form, which is only required when there's more than $50 in interest, that lists at Manulife as the payer. Now, Canada has a system of corporate taxes where a company only pays taxes on the profit. So, by filling out the paperwork, where the taxpayer paid the veteran interest, but the money was attributed to Manulife. Manulife ended up with a tax deduction because they reduced their revenue, their gross revenue, take away their expenses, equals profit. And profit is what gets taxed in Canada for a corporation. So I'm making this podcast and I'm thinking to myself, okay, in what world is it okay for the taxpayers to pay a disabled veteran that became disabled fighting for the country? And then the country didn't pay them the long-term disability, so the person, the veteran, sued the nation in a class action lawsuit, and they won. So when it comes time to do the paperwork for all the money that has to change hands because the government broke the contract. The government got the disabled veteran disabled in the first place. So the government decides it's okay to give a large, sophisticated, and profitable private insurance company, Manulife, a break on taxes. At the same time, the veteran is assessed taxes on the T-5 on line 121 of the Income Tax Act uh, form, as if the veteran had invested the money. I think the nation ought to be prepared to have to pay punitive damages in the order of 10 times as much money on this fraud, because interest on damages, according to paragraph 4 of the Income Tax Bulletin 365R2, Interest, even though it may augment a damages award, is still not taxed. Damages are not taxed at all. So the fact of the matter is, the whole thing shouldn't have been taxed, but the T5 investment income, what I'm doing is hoping to pick away at their stupid lies until we find one which is nice and simple and after we take out the card from their house of cards, their house of cards will fall. So I figured I'd do up a short story, which I did the other day in a column, 
and now I'm uploading a short podcast. Good afternoon, Captain Retired. Matt Edwards here with another short podcast. I'm going to do the Canada Pension Plan Disability, or the Canada Pension Plan maybe in general a little bit, and I'm putting it in the tax folder, I guess you'd call it, but I don't really think it's a form of tax. But, you know, many people in the government think it is. And what sparked this podcast was I was having a kind of a long and protracted argument with a veteran in my own group about the bridging part of the Canada Pension Plan and the fact that it gets taken into account by the Canadian Forces Superannuation Act Pension, and I say that is illegal. You see, the government says many things, and what they'd like to do isn't always what's legal. So, under the Constitution, property and civil rights are provincial. And that's probably why the Canada Pension Plan Act requires 7 out of 10 provinces with 67% of the population, or you cannot change the act in a major way. Although it's a federal law, it can be changed in minor ways, but the provinces must be consulted and agree with any major change. So, under the Canadian Forces Superannuation Act, you have Section 15.2b, which allows the Canadian Forces to take the Canada Pension Plan into account. Now, as I was chatting with that veteran online, I was giving him a bone, as far as I'm concerned, because I explained that I think the intent of the bridging idea is to take a healthy person who, say, gets out at age 55 and has 30 years of service, and so they have 85 with the magic formula, so they get an unreduced pension. However, they're out five years before the Canada Pension Plan, so I think the bridging payment is supposed to be there to cover off the period for a short, you know, five or six, four, five, six years, whatever. But where I really think the government is screwing over people is on the Canada Pension Plan Disability. A person could get out at age, say, 35 or 40, and they're much in advance of the, you know, Canadian Forces Pension Retirement Age or the Canada Pension Plan Retirement Age. But because the Canada Pension Plan is a comprehensive social insurance introduced in 1966, There are six components, and let me see if I can tell them all to you. There's the Canada Pension Plan Retirement, the one that most people expect to get. There's the Canada Pension Plan Disability, which is the one which is the largest long-term disability insurance in Canada. Then you have the survivor benefit for a person who's got Canada Pension Plan and dies. Their survivor gets some. Then you have the orphans one, and you have the children's pension, and you have a death benefit. So the government introduced this comprehensive scheme, don't mean that too negatively, but scheme is often referred to with a negative light. So they take this scheme and they create it where the payment the person sends in, which is the contribution, the premium, that is the premium for the insurance. So if a person gets disabled in service, say they're training for war or fighting a war, they get penalized several ways. First of all, Even if they have over 10 years, they get a Canadian Forces Superannuation Act pension that is reduced because they could no longer serve because they got injured in service. Now, say they had enough four out of six years contributions to the Canada Pension Plan. It used to be two out of three, but in 1998, save money, the government increased the vesting period to four out of six years. So if you have four to six years, you apply to the Canada Pension Plan. Not only do you get a reduced Canada Pension Plan because... Same reason you get a reduced Canadian Forces pension. You do, you can't contribute to it if you become disabled or more. You now get a reduced Canada pension plan 
disability, and because of Section 15.2b, they take that reduced Canada Pension Plan into account, and they reduce the Canadian Forces Disablement Pension. Now, I cry foul here. I was a reservist. I get a Reserve Force Pension Plan. I don't get a Canadian Forces Superannuation Act Reg Force Pension Plan. But I don't want my government doing stupid things like this and disabled the veterans who served our country should not get screwed over by the government they became disabled fighting for. Now, I don't think the listener to my podcast, if there are very many, would disagree with that, this notion. I think Peter Stoffer's idea of allowing people you know, to get the Canada Pension Plan and the Canadian Forces Pension at the same time, but he's trying to go after it on a legal, uh, political level. I called him once and I explained that I think they should go after it on the legal level because under the Constitution, Section 9213 says that the provinces are the sole legislators for pensions. Now, you also have Canadian Forces Superannuation Act, Section 15.2b, which is not provincial law, it is federal law. It affects the property and civil rights of veterans, and in particular, disabled veterans, which brings Charter, Section 151 into play. So you have violated the Charter, Canada, in creating Section 15.2b. You have violated the Constitution under Section 92.13 under the law. So I have zero respect for people that just want to save money. And I want the government to start acting within the law because the law has a cost. If you want to obey the Constitution, you make sure that you don't pass laws that affect a disabled veteran who is no longer serving Canada that affects their property and civil rights. Good evening. Captain Matt Edward retired here, delivering an on-location off-out-of-my-home podcast for a change. I'm out visiting, uh, dropping off... Uh, well, actually, I'm picking up my son at the movies. And... As usual, I have these ideas, even when I'm driving. And I had an idea with respect to the class action lawsuit for the service income support insurance plan. Now, in the law, according to Income Tax Act Section 61F, a payment must be periodic in order for it to be taxed. The lump sum payment after the Dennis Manu's class action lawsuit was a lump sum and not periodic. A lump sum is defi- by definition not periodic. So I have news for the government of Canada. You cannot tax the class action lawsuit that I wasn't part of. Now, the people that decided that taxes would apply even though the payment was made as a lump sum They would have us believe that because the payments were due periodically, then the word periodic must be used and therefore it is taxed. I have a different proposition. The words that Parliament puts in an act are put there for a purpose. Parliament put the word periodic in there, and if the payment is not in fact periodic, then Income Tax Act Section 61F does not apply. Black and white. Now, just to make sure that the listener understands, if 
the proposition put forward by the dumb people who say that because the payments were supposed to be periodic, then taxes must apply. You see, if that proposition is to be accepted, then basically there is no scenario in which there is no taxes. In other words, the people in Parliament who put that word in the Act could have left the word out because then all payments would have been taxed, periodic or not periodic. So I must point out that one of the main things that drive me is the adherence to law. So if the word is put into the Income Tax Act that a payment must be periodic in order for to attract taxes under Section 6 of the Income Tax Act, then if the payment is not periodic, you cannot charge income taxes. Good afternoon, Captain Madhead Retired here with another short podcast. I'm kind of getting worn out by all the phone calls I'm doing, and, but I had this idea that I think is important, so I called the Canadian Forces Morale and Welfare Services people. Now, they are the agency in the Department of National Defense that is above the Service Income Support Insurance Plan Financial Services. So the CISIP people are part of the Canadian Forces Morale and Welfare Services. So I asked them, to try to look into the T5007 information slip that I feel I should have gotten because, as a reservist, I had to be hurt on duty. If a person is working in a civilian job and they get hurt on duty, they get workers' comp. And then they get a T5007 ever since 1982, and that gets reported on the income and used for uh, income-tested benefits, but then is taken off for taxation. Now, that's not a perfect solution, but it is certainly a better solution than paying tax on something when you are required to get hurt in service as a condition of benefits. So I asked them to look into that, and I expect them to try to avoid doing it. Because unlike most employers, the government is the tax people, the tax collector. Now... While I was talking to them, one of the things that I mentioned that was really important was a case called Suchan, unless I'm misspelling it, uh, mispronouncing it, S-U-C-H-O-N, Federal Court of Appeal, 2002 or 2003. They had a person from IBM who was on long-term disability, and one of his arguments was is that he was getting a private long-term disability payment. Uh, workers' compensation, my mistake. So it came up about the Toronto firefighters, they have a private workers' compensation system. So it's not exactly a common thing, but it is possible. So the Department of National Defense put into the contract of insurance, CISIP, that a disabled veteran who is a reservist had to be injured on duty or no insurance. So you cannot tell me that that's not the same as workers' compensation. So because it's the same type of legal payment that's like workers' compensation. It is my position, allegation, that they have to report it properly on a T5007 form. I might have even did a podcast about this in the past, and I know I submitted T5007s, 
but I know Canada Revenue Agency promptly ignored them. Now, if I submit a false document to the government and I try to get something I'm not allowed to get, I fully expect the government to try to charge me. They didn't charge me. Now, they didn't do it either, but I suspect we could force this issue through the Privacy Act because the Privacy Act also allows people to correct the information that is on their file. So if the government collects information that is false or misleading, I submit that I can ask for that to be corrected. If that information is a T5007 instead of a T4A, and instead of Manulife, I want the Government of Canada listed, then I believe I would win. Why should I have to do that when the rules are supposed to be followed? Good morning, Captain Matt Edward Retard. We're here with another one of these uh, short, I hope, podcasts. I'm going to be trying to get on VOCM radio with host Patty Daly on the Open Lion program. He has me on so often, I'm giving him a good plug. My topic for today, and I'm trying to keep it simple, is the waste of the taxpayers' money in duplicate things, such as the diminished earnings capacity. And the reason I'm making this call is that I was looking at a document on page 165 of an Access to Information Act request that uh, Kim Davis sent me, <coughs> and it states in paragraph 3, CAF-LTD, CISIP veteran, a medically released veteran who has been found to be totally disabled under the Canadian Air Force's long-term disability CISIP policy, could also be considered totally and permanently incapacitated if the veteran applies for the Veterans Affairs Canada Rehabilitation Program and meets the DEC criteria as described in the DEC policy. The VAC DEC decision may allow access to the CIA and future SRB payments, period. Now, the problem I have with that is basically they're saying, if I read this right, the person who's medically released from the Canadian Forces and gets the long-term disability insurance paid by the Canadian Forces long-term disability plan will be treated no different than a person who walks in off the street and makes an application to Veterans Affairs. Now, surely the listener, if there are any, can understand that this will cost more taxes. We don't need to get an exact costing, but they're doing something twice. Now, since October of 2016, the Government of Canada has been topping up the CISA program, and it is my allegation that because they're working together, these two programs, that they must, and I repeat this, must use the same criteria. One of the reasons I brought this up is my cousin. He was declared DEC by VAC, but CISIP said he wasn't totally disabled. Something is wrong if you have two programs that are supposed to be doing the same thing, but they're doing the same thing at the same time, which is why I brought it up to try to get on the radio station. Why should the government of Canada, why should the people of Canada, why should the taxpayer have to pay for something twice? I think it all has come down, comes down to protecting their jobs, protecting their empire and power, and they do not want to relinquish their power, so they put stupid things like in that policy on page 165. Good afternoon, Captain Matt Edward Retired here with another one of my short podcasts. At least I hope it'll be short, kind of triggered today. Well, 
I had a veteran by the name of uh, Dan Mansfield send me his supplement and retirement benefit uh, information and I plugged it into a spreadsheet or I looked at it at least and I saw that they took taxes out. That's bad. You are not supposed to tax a payment which is damages. So the payment of the supplement or retirement benefit is supposed to be in relation to the inability to save from after age 65 retirement. So that's also known as damages. So if you're going to make a payment of damages, you have to treat it as capital, which is not to be taxed as income. That's it, black and white. The other point I'd like to make about it is that they didn't pay in the right amount. I looked at the amount that they paid him. I looked at some old documents he sent me in the past, and I compared the two, and it appears to be about $2,000 off. He's only been getting the earnings loss benefit, income replacement benefit, for a couple of years, so that's a lot of money for only a few years. You see? Like, it was about 50% of what he should have got, if I'm right. Now, there is one caveat. I didn't uh, put in the amount from before October 2016 as 75% of the uh, earnings that he lost. I used 90% for the whole thing. There was only about three or four, maybe six or seven months. So out of the 30 or so months that it was in place, I don't think it's significant because it's only a 20% of the difference for a few months. My point is these people don't seem to understand that they've broken the law. The supplement or retirement benefit is paid in relation to Section 25 of the Veterans Wellbeing Act. Now, if they don't do it properly, they have broken the law because the law states that it is supposed to be done this way, but somebody decided to do it in a way other than the law. So I don't think these people realize that they could go to jail for something like this. Although it's very unlikely to happen, Criminal Code Section 126 states that to violate a federal act is a criminal code offense, an indictable offense. So while they want to save money at the veterans' expense for the taxpayers of Canada, they ought to do things according to the law that they wrote in 2006. So the amount of the money is supposed to be based on the amount payable, and not the amount paid. So when they look at the gross supplementary retirement benefit, it's supposed to be based on the gross earnings loss benefit before any clawbacks. So Master Warrant Officer, I hope I got that right, and it's not Warrant Officer or not Chief Warrant Officer or whatever. I think he was a Master Warrant Officer, retired, Dan Mansfield, ought to have gotten the exact amount of money that he was owed in law because he had not had as they said in the law when they made it, he did not have the ability to save up for his retirement because he was medically released because he was injured in service. So there's no need to shortchange him. There's no need to pay him the wrong amount. They should be able to, because they designed the system, they ought to be able to get it right. Right? All this stuff is really annoying to me. That's wearing me out, frankly. All I ask is the government do what it promises. If it wrote a law that said you were supposed to do this or that, I mean, I didn't write the law. But I do know what they intended to do because of the Canada Gazette and their VPPM5 where it states how they have to do it. Now, I've gotten caught up in all this today, 
and I'm pretty sure that they failed to give them compound daily interest as well. So let me tell you how I think they screwed up here. First of all, they gave them the wrong amount. Secondly, they charged them tax. Thirdly, I believe they left out compound daily interest. Now when you add it all up, there were 7,360 veterans that were supposed to get the supplementary retirement benefit if they'd done it wrong in Dan's case. What do you think the odds are that they did it right in the other people's cases? Good afternoon, Captain Matt Edward Retired here with another short podcast. At least I hope it will be. I was thinking about taxes on the service income support insurance plan. Well, it's not income, it's insurance. It's not paid in relation to service, it's paid in relation to the contract of insurance and the premium that purchased it. If it was paid in relation to service, I would call it income. But basically, it is once removed. I guess almost like a second cousin, I guess. I'm not good with relationship stuff. I don't know how they work. I always get confused. But if you have two subjects, say you get paid money, and it's in relation to the time that you served in the military, that is always going to be income. But say you get hurt in service, and say they do a percentage of disability, like under the Disability Award or the Pension Act, then the amount of the money will be determined by the percentage of disability as assessed by Veterans Affairs Canada. It is not time-based. It is not based on your rank. It is based on how much they think you have been impaired for working after service. So basically it's a compensation payment or a damages payment. Now, <coughs> this is a policy happens to be a non-indemnity and contributory insurance. That means it doesn't compensate for anything. If it was an indemnity insurance, well, it would have the right to claw back, and it would have the right to be clawed back by other people. But basically, it's a insurance that is being paid 100% by the Canadian Forces member. Basically, service has value. So if the government pays 85% on the soldier's behalf, or could pay 10% or 5% or 100% or whatever. Anything paid on the soldier's behalf is paid by the soldier because it was earned in service. So there's a 15% for the Red Force person deducted from pay. There's 85% paid by the government, allegedly. I'll have to see that before I believe it. But therefore, the soldier paid 100% of the premium. Now, because the person paid 100% of the premium, they have to get, if you become disabled, a tax-free payment. That's because you bought it yourself. Now, the thing is, the government is trying to get away with taxing the CISA policy so they can save money. So it wants to get some of the money it pays out back in the form of tax. It all depends on how high your tax rate is. You might have a low income and therefore... You know, nothing but CISIP, and therefore it won't be much taxes taken off. You could have other money coming in besides CISIP, and therefore you could have a higher marginal tax rate. But basically, because it's insurance, it should never be taxed. Now, the problem with this is people believe that all receipts of money is income. It all depends on why you get it. Okay? If you get a payment, and it's in relation to your service, if it's in relation to you making something, 
or something like that, then it's probably going to be income. But if you get the payment simply because you bought an insurance policy, which is not guaranteed, one thing about income is that it has to be guaranteed. Nobody's going to go to work and then give their time. Well, I mean, as I say it, I'm thinking of commission jobs, but you accept a contract where you get paid on commission. That's a different story. But say for a salaried employee, nobody will work and keep working if they don't get paid. Eventually, they'll get tired of going to service, doing the boss a, a big favor, going to work and not getting paid. Eventually, they'll say enough of this crap and not show up because if you no work, no pay. So, you know, no pay, no work. It goes like that. Now, the CISA policy is entirely different because it's based on a contingent event, something that is uncertain. So if a person becomes disabled, then they get the insurance. Now, I'm making this longer than I had meant to. I shouldn't say that even. It's making it even longer. But in my case, I was a reservist. <clears throat> reservist, when they get hurt, had they hurt on duty. Now, when a person is hurt on duty, that is commonly known as workers' compensation. So for the very few people that get service income support insurance plan who are reservists, like myself, then they have to get tax-free payments. There is absolutely no chance that they could make it otherwise. Good afternoon. Captain Matt Edwards retired here with another one of these short podcasts. A lot of these things I'm talking about all the time are coming back to tax. So here we are again talking about tax, or I will be in a second at least. One of the uh, veterans I'm trying to help out is Denis Ulet in Coal Lake, Alberta. And they said, Veterans Affairs Canada, that he owed $133,000 because he got the earnings loss benefit at the same time as he got the income replacement benefit, as you call it now. The problem is, that's not true. Veterans Affairs could have been first payer, and CISIP long-term disability could have been the ones who said that he owed money. So, I mean, two uh, opposite forces in physics, equal and opposite forces, they cancel out. So I, I say the same thing, that this should cancel out. But in the meantime, they did take the supplement retirement benefit and they applied it against his alleged arrears. Now the problem with that is, well, I bet you a million dollars that they're going to send him a T4A. Now, that's a slip that you get when you get a payment sort of like a pension. And they make a payment, well, they'll probably put it on a T4A, when in reality... He didn't have any income. Now the irony is that they took the payment and I suspect they'll send a T4A slip out to him. But had he been made the payment, had, it, had they actually made the payment, they would have had to deduct taxes. So did they put the whole gross amount against his alleged debt and will he be taxed on the amount of money that he did not get. You see, the big problem I'm finding is that they're trying to label something as income when it is not income. It is actually compensation for injury or damages. 
I called Denise Member of Parliament because I believe this should be outlawed. In fact, it actually is. That's one of the main points I decided to pick up the phone and make a podcast. The Veterans Wellbeing Act Section 89 forbids anyone from taking into account or taking the money directly from Veterans Affairs when a person is getting compensation. The Supplementary Retirement Benefit is a payment known as compensation under that act. So no compensation is allowed to be intercepted except when the government wants to overlook the law that it made because it wants to take the money for itself. Good afternoon, Captain Matt Edward Retired here with another short podcast. I'll make this one as short as possible. It's getting close to Christmas. But a thought just occurred to me about the taxation of the Service Income Support Insurance Plan. Now, the Service Income Support Insurance Plan is, like all insurance, funded by the premiums of the people who pay into it. So although I keep saying the government of Canada is the insurer, really, it's the people who pay into the program that are actually insuring the other members. So, say a disabled veteran arises and then they're medically released. If they get the service income support insurance plan, their own money, their own program, their own insurance is the one who pays them, not the government of Canada. Now, why this is important is taxation, as usual. Although the money comes from the employer, goes through Manulife, and ends up back in the hands of the disabled veteran, it is money that is put into the hands of the disabled veteran by himself or herself and the other soldiers who are not disabled because insurance only works when there's only a few people that claim it. So that's just the nature of the business and when this fact comes out it will screw up any idea of the government taxing when you get your own insurance back and it's not paid from the employer because that's their basis of, in, of taxation. According to them in Income Tax Act Section 61F, the employer must pay part of the premium. Now, it ha- if it has to pay part of the premium, then it has to pay the premium to another entity, like an insurance company. So if the government self-insures, therefore it cannot charge a tax because the money is not going to a third-party insurer, it's just basically going to itself. One of these days we'll catch them. Good afternoon, Captain Matt Edwards here, retired with another short podcast. I was just thinking, and I'm trying not to think as much about these things as it approaches Christmas. Today is the 23rd of December. But a thought just struck me that I think is very important. If you look at the long-term disability premiums that the government pays to whoever, itself or a private insurance company, the key question to be asked is, was the premium earned in service? Now, if the premium was earned in service, then it's considered part of pay. And because it was earned by the soldier, the Canadian Forces member, it doesn't matter that it was paid by the employer. What matters, just like normal pay, is that it was earned by the Canadian Forces member. Now that has very important implications because when a person pays 100% of the premium, if they earn it with service and then get paid and pay cash for it, they get long-term disability insurance that is tax-free. If they have somebody else pay to an insurance company, 
the premium that they would have paid to the person, then it's the same as pay, except it was paid to somebody else on the behalf of the person. So in both cases, there's, in the normal case of a Canadian Forces Reg Force person, 85% of the premium is paid by the employer. Well, the soldier's pay is also paid by the employer in relation to the service. So if the key question to be answered is, is the premium paid in relation to service? Of course it is. Then it was paid to the soldier, whether it was paid directly to the insurer or kept by the insurer, because the government is the insurer, is immaterial. The bottom line is the tax-free payment must be made, not a taxable payment. Good morning. This is the 31st of December, 2019, my last podcast for 2019. I was taking a break, but some things have been sticking in my head, and taxes are usually the one. So I'm looking up the Oxford English Dictionary definition of tax. Money that you had to pay to the government so that it can pay for public services. People pay tax according to their income, and businesses pay tax according to their profits. Tax is often paid on goods and services also. Now, the reason I'm doing this was that I was thinking about the penalty that they called a deemed tax on the Service Income Support Insurance Plan class action lawsuit. So while I'm doing this droning on, I'll go look that word up on the Oxford English Dictionary. And it says that it's a punishment for breaking a law, rule, or contract, or a disadvantage suffered as a result of something. Now, why would the government of Canada create a deemed tax, which is really a penalty, because it was charged at Treasury Bill plus 2% compound daily interest for the time value of the money that was not paid because the person didn't pay their taxes on in a year that they were supposed to be paid in. So I submit that the government is being disingenuous with the people, and it's not only veterans. But in Section 120.31 of the Income Tax Act, they deem a tax to be... Uh, in law payable but really it's a punishment it's a huge financial penalty it is not taxes that are meant to be paid for the government to run its services it is a penalty for filing taxes late now earlier today I made a post on Facebook and I was saying that come the new year, I'm thinking about starting some lawsuits and stuff. And one of the main things I might try to do to help those who suffered this penalty is to challenge the definition of tax and the definition of penalty for the veterans and anybody in this boat. Because I do not think people who did not have a choice about not getting a money in a particular year should have to pay a penalty, which they call a tax. Good morning, Captain Retired Matt Edwards uh, with another short podcast on the 11th of May, 2020. This uh, podcast is going to be in relation to a column I just wrote about a letter I received from Sun Life as the administrator of the policy 12500-G from where I get long-term disability insurance. Ever since 2009, 
onwards. I've been getting it 11 years now. And Canada Revenue Agency sent a requirement to pay, otherwise known as a garnishment order. Now, unlike a normal creditor, they don't have to go to court to get it. So the government wrote a special law to allow tax collectors, like I used to be myself, to simply issue these, and once their team leader, their manager, uh, approves it, it is the same as a court order. Now, the problem is, I didn't realize it when I was doing this as a job, but there are laws all across Canada that are supposed to protect the insurance proceeds a person gets. If a person was allowed to, a creditor, was allowed to take into account the insurance and then issue a requirement to pay or get a garnishment order from a judge in most cases, then that would create a very bad problem for the government because the people who need that insurance money, they buy the insurance, they need it for a reason. When times, when a risk happens, like disability, they need that insurance to live on. So if creditors intercept that money, then the person doesn't have the money to live on. Now, you take a disabled person, because this is disability insurance, you have the government of Canada intercepting that disability insurance, and then the person doesn't have enough money to live on, and they were too disabled to work. Now, does that strike you as fair? Now, the thing is, is they're trying to say that these monies are income, and you owe income taxes, so because, you know, income taxes are the most important thing in Canada, then they're going to ignore the other law. Now, what I really think is happening is that they are not aware of the other law, but if they are aware of the provincial prohibition against these monies being intercepted, then that makes it uh, magnitudes worse, because then they're thumbing their nose deliberately at the provinces who made these uh, insurance laws because insurance is provincial. Then the federal government thumbed its nose at the provincial government and decided to, you know, do things anyway. Now, I hate to do it because I meant to keep this short, but that brings up the issue of paramountcy. Uh, when there's a law at the provincial or federal level and there's a dispute, usually the federal law prevails. But however, if the Constitution Act allows the province to have exclusive jurisdiction of something, then if the federal government makes a law about insurance, for example, then it wouldn't matter because, well, it doesn't have the jurisdiction to have laws about insurance. Because, well, insurance is under Section 9213 of the Constitution Act, uh, property and civil rights. So because it's property and civil rights, they must file to the provinces. So the provinces had a jurisdiction about insurance. And they made insurance monies exempt from creditors' attention. Now, people don't think about it, but the Canada Revenue Agency is a creditor. If someone went bankrupt and they had a, uh, a debt owing with the government then the person would have the, I used to do these for CRA, uh, do up a proof of claim, send to the trustee, and be included with the other creditors for if there are any proceeds to be dispersed. Now, the problem is people believe that the government needs its revenue and they want to treat everybody the same, and I saw a misguided notion of this in the Rose uh, Nova Scotia Supreme Court case. Nope. My mistake, it was in the Dirtle, Nova Scotia Supreme Court, 2018 case about bankruptcy, and, uh, and the registrar in bankruptcy was saying that, uh, of course, you know, the rule of law requires that nobody be treated special, but that is exactly wrong. What the government does in many laws is to create special groups of people. I believe it was the law 
Supreme Court of Canada 1998 case, but it might have been a different one. I've read so many different cases. But the thing is, is that the law often carves out special niche groups that get special attention under the law. So when that registrar was trying to say that everybody should be treated equally, well, sometimes the law is supposed to treat people differently than other people, not equally. Now, in fact, I could point out that under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, there are ranking of creditors' priority. And that is an example of exactly what I'm saying. So when they were looking at the people who should come first and the people who should come last, they decided that these people, A, B, C, and D, and E, ranked in priority to other people. So I find it strange. I don't want to criticize the guy too bad because, well, he at least saw that it was terrible for the uh, trustee to try to convert a disability award into a windfall for the creditors. But on the other hand, he didn't seem to realize that treating everybody equally can be worse in the long run. It's called equality with a vengeance. There was a case where a guy was getting, a single dad was getting EI, and he was getting less money than a single woman getting EI. Now, with a child. So, the judges in the Supreme Court said we can fix this in two ways. We can take it from her and we can, or we can give it to him. If we take it from her, that's equality with a vengeance. If we give it to him, that's equality. You see, we don't need equality with a vengeance. Don't treat everybody the same when it's the same in a bad sense. Good evening. Captain Matt Edwards retired here with another short podcast. At least I hope it's short. I started this new endeavor where I do Facebook Live. Uh, I try to make it about half hour or so, but it ends up to be 45 up to 70 minutes long so far. And uh, <clears throat> I thought of a couple of things that I probably could have included in today's Facebook Live broadcast. So I figured I'd just simply make a podcast. Well, it has to do... Let me see if I can get my train of thought right. I was just on a dock walk, and I had this idea. The Service Income Support Insurance Plan, Policy 901-102, is taxed. It's taxed under the alleged authority of the Income Tax Act, Section 61F. Now, Income Tax Act, Section 61F, requires the employer to pay part of the premium. Now, when I appealed my taxes to the appeals officer at Canada Revenue Agency, and I thereafter did a uh, Privacy Act request, and I have a copy of it, when they were looking into whether or not the employer paid any part of my premium, they looked at the Treasury Board website, and they just merely looked at the fact that they said they paid it. <clears throat> now, there's a couple of things, even though I'm not a lawyer, I've done a lot of legal reading. And he who alleges must prove. If the employer must pay part of the premium, and CRA says that the employer paid part of the premium, then they must prove it. And proving it is not simply looking at a website. You have to go into it in more detail than that, and you have to trace the money, follow the money. So, that wasn't the only thing, and I think I've done that idea before, but what I was thinking of is that I have several pieces of proof that also go along with the idea that we paid all of the premium. There was a 1997 document I found with former Prime Minister Paul Martin. I think he was the Minister of Finance at the time. And he said that it was a well-known fact that people, the employer, if they pay part of the premium for something like workers' compensation, 
or the CISIP long-term disability premiums, that in the end, they pass that cost on to the worker. So they give them less money and make up the difference. Employers aren't known to be charitable. In addition, I always get his name mixed up. It's either Paul or Peter. Uh, and now I can't even remember his last name. Uh, in Ontario, a workers' compensation expert. Uh, and he said in the 1980s when he was helping to overhaul the Ontario WSIB, he said it was a well-known fact that employers pass costs up to the consumer or down to the employee, but they do not eat the cost. So think of that in terms of not only the CISA policy and the Canada Pension Plan and the Canadian Forces Pension, but think of that in terms of the workers' compensation. If anybody after their military service, because my audience is primarily, I'm aiming this at military veterans, possibly people still serving. Well, <clears throat> the thing is, the employer doesn't actually pay the premiums for workers' compensation. Now, tomorrow I plan a, uh, a column that I have tentatively titled The Great Compromise, because workers' compensation isn't something mandated by the government. It was originally seen as a great compromise between the workers and the employers, where the workers gave up the right to sue, and the employees agreed to pay 100% of the premiums for the workers' compensation system. But recall, they don't. See? So this is a giant fraud. The employers pay nominally, but the cost actually goes back on our backs. Now, all of this creates for a big old mess, and unlike every other employer, the government actually saves on the taxes. That's another idea I had. I'm thinking about looking at all of the past payments for CISIP in 2009, for example. I think it was $40 million. And when they say how much money they paid out to disabled veterans, are they including the taxes or are they not including the taxes? Because if they do a withhold for taxes, they never actually paid the money, right? So that's just the way it works. Now, I've read a document in the past where the government usually counts on getting 16% of the money back, like in old age and stuff. Now, the thing is, unlike other employers, when you pay out money, you can't count on getting it back. So the government's in a unique position where, basically, it's abusing us.